an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio. Heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, should Memorial Stadium at Seattle Center be demolished or preserved? Let's not forget that those were the exact same conversations being used to potentially justify removing Key Arena, which, thank God, never happened. And then, from the archives, riding along with the Army Corps of Engineers on a Puget Sound snag boat. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. And now it's time for All Over the Map with our resident historian Felix Bunnell. A quick look at the stories behind the names of local places. And this week, with the Canadian border set to return a little closer to normal in just a few weeks, Felix looks at the border town of Danville in Ferry County. Good morning, Felix. Morning, Dave. Yeah, you know, Point Roberts has justifiably gotten so much of the attention during the extended border closure But it's not the only Washington town on the 49th parallel that's been suffering economically and otherwise during the pandemic. Uh, You might recall last year we looked at Medellin Falls in the extreme northeast corner of the state. This time we're looking at Danville, which is in Ferry County. This is north-central Washington, north of the town of Republic, on the Kettle River. The much bigger Canadian town just across the border is Grand Forks, British Columbia, though the official Canadian border crossing is at a place called Carson, B.C., Now, this area is all mining country uh, that was first settled by non-Indigenous people back in the late 19th century. The very tiny town of Danville is named after the Danville Mine and Danville Mining Company. It was originally called Nelson after the brothers and founders Peter B. Nelson and O.B. Nelson, and they might have been from a town in Nebraska that was also called Nelson's. Lots of Nelson's. (laughs) Um, There's also a city in B.C. called Nelson that's on the Great Northern Railway as well, and so the name of Danville was changed around 1901. If you look on old USGS maps from the early 20th century, it still says Nelson right there where Danville would later appear. Now, this is the part of the state that was once a Colville Indian Reservation, but when minerals were discovered there, that land was taken away from the indigenous people and opened to white homesteaders and miners instead. It's one of the great injustices in Washington history. Now, there's not much mining there nowadays or much of anything else commerce-wise, but there's a post office and there's a retail store and gas station called the Danville Outpost. Before the pandemic, a big part of their business was receiving packages for Canadian customers who would then just cross over the border to pick up small stuff, but even big stuff like lawn furniture and appliances. Now, that part of the business, of course, has been on hold since March 2020, and many of the packages and some lawn furniture have actually piled up. Uh, Many of Danville Outpost's Canadian customers, they also have post office boxes at the Danville Post Office. Now, I talked to Mark Swanson. He's there at the Outpost. He's known as Uncle Swanee. That's a little family business. He told me that during the pandemic, they began offering a special service to their Canadian customers. For some reason, at the post office, their uh, credit card terminal doesn't take phone transactions. So because ours does, they'll call here and and, uh, and I'll run their credit card and charge a couple bucks for uh, the processing and whatever, and then I'll bring the bring their money down to renew their post office box or to, to get something sent up to them or whatever. So this wasn't something they set out to offer. It's just sort of organically developed. A Canadian customer could call down, give their credit card, then mm-hmm. Uncle Swanee would walk over to the post office and, and rent, you know, pay their rental on their box. Sounds very convenient. Now, yeah. Now, I told you Danville was small. How small exactly? Well, Uncle Swanee told me the Danville outpost sits in the middle between the border and that post office that doesn't take credit cards by phone. 
The board is a few hundred feet up to north, and the post office is a few hundred feet more south. And that's Danville. That uh, pinpoints it pretty well. (laughs) Now, Uncle Swanee and everyone at the Danville Outpost are thrilled. They can welcome back their Canadian customers on November 8th. Billy believes it won't be quite back to normal until there aren't any vaccination or testing requirements for Canadians to cross in and out of the United States. But we're a couple ticks closer as of November 8th. All right. Felix Spinell's features available anytime at MyNorthwest.com. Felix, thank you. Hey, stop by and say hi to Uncle Swanee. Serving greater Seattle. And now, let's take your mind off the miserable traffic by journeying into the past. When Mayor Jenny Durkin announced a deal with Seattle Public Schools that included a plan to demolish Memorial Stadium at Seattle Center, our resident historian Felix Bennell got to wondering why the parties involved aren't considering preservation and renovation instead. Felix is brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning, Felix. Good morning, Dave. Yeah, we've been covering the story for going on about five years. Now, that stadium, the official name is Seattle High School Memorial Stadium, built in 1947 in memory of nearly 800 Seattle alums who died in World War II. Now, I admit, I've been fixated on the memorial wall. That's the feature that lists all those names in which you can park your car right up against, as I did yesterday. Now, when the mayor announced demolition plans, no mention was made of the the memorial wall, but they did when we reached out, say they will save that, you know, whatever happens to the stadium. Mm -hmm. And I guess that should be the end of the story, but I got to thinking, and I did some research, had some help from a great friend of the show, uh, Lee Corbin, who did some additional digging. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the premise, and, and maybe this is really obvious, but it's not just the wall. The entire stadium is the memorial. Now, in fact, the stadium was around for about four years before the wall was dedicated in 1951. And it turns out this isn't just some pedantic argument or splitting hairs. I spoke with UW architecture professor and architectural historian uh, Jeffrey Carl Oxner. He said the late 1940s was all about facilities themselves serving as memorials, not just freestanding statues or shrines. In the post-World War II era, it was very typical that functional buildings and works of engineering were designated as memorials rather than building separate structures that served as memorials but had no other purpose. Now, the stadium was designed by architect George Stoddard, and it was named Seattle High School Memorial Stadium before World War II had even ended. The name came from a school board member. Now, I mentioned the research that Lee Corbin did. What he found was several newspaper clippings that talk about the stadium before and during construction that reveals how the entire facility was regarded. An example from the Seattle PI from uh, March 1947 says, not just a huge mass of concrete surrounding a gridiron field, but ultra-modern in every detail, the stadium will be just what Seattle citizens intended it to be, a truly living war memorial. And again, this is four years before that wall of names was built. Now, the stadium isn't currently on any historic register. It's never been officially considered by the Seattle Landmarks Board. But Jeffrey Carl Oxner says it would easily qualify as a landmark under several official criteria. One reason is because the architect, George Wellington Stoddard, is significant. He also designed Green Lake Aqua Theater and the South Grandstand at Husky Stadium and that weird little octagonal gas station on Denny Way we talked about <laughs> earlier in the summer. Right. He also designed Victory Square and, you know, the temporary monument uh, during World War II downtown. But the architect is only part of Memorial Stadium's landmark bona fides. It's also certainly significant for its cultural history as the center of so many different kinds of celebrations and activities. I mean, how many generations of Seattleites went to that building for 
football games, for graduations, for other ceremonies. And then it got another layer of significance from the role it played in, in the Century 21 World's Fair and all of the ceremonies and activities that took place there. So clearly, the building qualifies under the landmarks designation on multiple criteria. It would also easily qualify for the National Register of Historic Places. Yeah, another researcher, retired Seattle Times writer Bill Costin, found some other great facts. You know, the concrete roof was the first of its kind over any stadium anywhere. And in 1967, Memorial Stadium was actually the first high school football field in the country to install AstroTurf, which is mm. crazy. Now, I also spoke with Chris Moore. He's executive director of the Washington Trust for Historic Preservation. That's a nonprofit group that advocates for not just freezing old buildings as museum pieces, but for keeping them relevant and as dynamic parts of the community. Now, on the day after the Foo Fighters christen the place and a few days before the Kraken make their home ice debut there, Chris Moore sees a lot of parallels between the original Seattle Center Coliseum and its dowdy and neglected neighbor. It was not that long ago at all when there was talk about demolishing Key Arena. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a white elephant. What can we do with it? The Sonics are gone. It's just sitting there. It needs to be upgraded. We've got to do something else. And, and look at it now. And then to think that you now have this memorial stadium echoing kind of a mirror of of key arena even though what's really kind of interesting to me and this is just kind of the architectural nerd in me but you know you look at memorial stadium it was only completed what 15 years before key arena yeah and so what chris moore says those buildings are from a different era and are kind of in a conversation or a dialogue is what happens in a city that stuff gets built at different times but there's lots of potential for renovation uh, given the open space around those concrete grandstands now, in her announcement of the new plan, the mayor mentioned the shabby condition of the stadium, which, generally speaking, is fine. It's in use all the time. It survived all those big earthquakes. It just hasn't been shown much love, maintenance-wise. So Chris Moore says when he hears talk of Memorial Stadium's tired condition as a reason for demolition, the whole thing starts to sound like Key Arena all over again. To talk about it in terms of, oh, it's in disrepair, it needs to be torn down, it needs to go away, it doesn't fit. Let's not forget that those were the exact same conversations being used to potentially justify removing Key Arena, which, thank God, never happened. So do I detect another Benel crusade coming? Well, you know, I just it just feels hasty to me. Uh, the fact they made this announcement, you know, a month ago that we're going to tear it down and it's going to be on the ballot in February. Now, City of Seattle and School District declined interview requests. Uh, Tim Robinson, the school district, says it's too early. With, you know, the ballot measure four months away doesn't seem too early to me. Too early to talk, anyway. Um, Historic Seattle, which is the local preservation advocacy group, Talk to Jeff Murdoch there. He's the, um, the advocacy guy there. He says the Landmarks Board, um, says the city should submit a nomination to the Landmarks Board before they ask the voters to pay for anything like a replacement of it. It all just seems kind of fast. If you're going to renew it or, or refurbish it, could you at least remove those support posts that obstruct the view from the stands? Wait, what support posts that obstruct the view? So on the far, on either end of the stadium? Yeah. What do you mean? There are support you know, posts. Well, I mean, you'd have to do obviously probably do seismic to the concrete, but you could reimagine it in a way that would. A part of it, it's also really hidden. I went down there yesterday to try to get a good photograph, and you can't even really see the stadium. There's no signage for it. It's it's entirely tucked away. Um, you know, I also checked with the Queen Anne Historical Society. They're not opposed to demolition. They want to save the memorial wall, and they they're not opposed to preservation either. But they want to see what what the plan would be before anything moves ahead. It just seems like everything's moving way too quickly with demolition as a foregone conclusion. Yeah. One hasn't been given an actual fair shake to actually be really reviewed for its historic significance and what the building really means as a monument and a memorial, rather than just that wall of names, if that makes sense. It does.
For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, snag boats operated by the Army Corps of Engineers have been clearing obstacles from local waters for generations. And here he is, marching up from deep within the bowels of the Bonneville Broadcast Center, where in restored the historical archive supervised by historian Felix Bunnell. And uh, today we talk about the uh, Puget Sound cleanup crews of history. Yeah, that was the Army Corps of Engineers theme song right there. I heard you singing along with the pinning the castle on my collar, right? Um, so I'm sorry, I, I've, <laughs> it's not not very of well all known. The military songs. That's the one song whose <laughs> words I don't know. Yeah, the Glee Club didn't sing that one no, back we at did Cornell. Not. Um, so after the big storms last weekend, the local waterways have a lot more logs and other hazards floating around in them, and you know these are a danger to small boats and to even big ships, right? Yes. But for the last 130 years, the Army Corps of Engineers that's been their task to pull snags out of the water. That's what they call logs floating in the water, snags and other debris, right? And this is really a tale of two vessels. Many people around here still remember the old W.T. Preston. I don't know. It was back in the 70s, even the early 80s. It was a steam-powered stern wheeler. Mm-hmm. I would often see it from the 520 Bridge. And it was it was in service from 1940 to 1981 all over the Puget Sound. Yeah, this edition from the gave it more flexibility to move around in small quarters. I talked to maritime historian Ron Burke. He's with the Puget Sound Maritime Historical Society. He told me what made the Preston so distinctive. The wheel at the back... I suppose, makes her a little bit easier to go up a narrow river rather than having side wheels. So it had its advantages, also had its disadvantages. They had to uh, learn to uh, go up the sound in a, in a strong wind, and uh, she was known for uh, being very stubborn, <laughs> running against the wind out on the sound. Oh, that big deck house is uh, quite a sail. <laughs> So the Preston was retired 35 years ago this month. It's up on display in Anacortes. You can tour it on the weekends. And uh, since 18, 1981, this is a vessel called the Puget. has been doing the same task. Cool thing is it hasn't changed much from how it was done in the 19th century. And I went out for a day with the crew of the Puget recently. Well, the Puget's an old seaplane tender from World War II. There's yeah. all sorts of layers of history here. But Captain Skip Green and everyone on the Puget, they love the old Preston. They know all the stories. But Captain Green told me what makes the Puget better. The difference we are from the Preston is... We picked things up on the fly. The Preston had uh, little, little boats. They would usually stop or spud down or anchor or tie up, and then they would go out and bring, the, bring it over and actually choke every, every log or pick that they had, and then they would pick it up and put it on the boat. We just, as you can see, we have the grapple. We, just can, we, can, we can move up to it at a couple of knots and uh, grab it and then, then stop, put it on the boat, do what we need to do to get it on the boat, and then just continue on. So I, I was unaware of that. So they actually have boats that go around picking these logs out of the water? Yeah, they have one boat, this old seaplane tender with a huge crane, an old uh, like an old truck-mounted crane on the front of it. And we went out to Elliott Bay, and there were two yeah. big snags, huge long logs floating yeah. there that had been tied by a construction crew working on the seawall, found them. And so Bob Dunning is a guy who operates a crane, and he told me about how it works. That, that cottonwood right there, that big cottonwood, you can imagine what would happen if... A tanker, a container ship, hit that with the wheel, and it would bring that cottonwood right up. I mean, you could do some major damage to a ship. And if a pleasure boat hit it, it would just, the boat would probably fly apart. You know, so that's why why we're out here. That's why we do what we do. 
Yeah. And it's, it's a cool thing. It's unchanged since the late 19th century. Well, it's interesting. This comes a pure coincidence that you were out there doing that yesterday. The White House announcing this new memorandum of understanding with Governor Inslee and the tribes and everybody to help further protect Puget Sound and, and clean things up and make it better for salmon and orcas and all of that. So nice to know that other folks are looking out after Puget Sound as well. Yeah, and if you go back to the 19th century, Puget Sound, that was the highway. I mean, there were there were no roads here, right? That's how you got around, and that's how people just took it for granted. And the Army Corps made it easier for people to get around and for commerce and passengers and everything. It's just a fascinating history that continues out on Puget Sound. Yeah. He misses the old boats, though, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do we have time to play this last yeah, cut? Go ahead. Yeah, this is Ron Burke, who's this maritime historian. He lived it firsthand. He worked on ships in the 50s, worked his way through college, grew up in Bremerton. Just a really cool, cool guy. Basically, all the ships are uh, foreign-owned, foreign-flagged, and foreign-crewed. And uh, the ships come in, and they, they swap containers maybe in just a day or two. Or In the old days, uh, so the Seattle waterfront would have freighters lined up all along it, and they'd be in in port maybe for a week or two. I'm prejudiced about that, so I would say it's a great loss. Just one last couple of fun facts. You know, the Preston had a crew of 14. The Puget has a crew of four. The Preston also had staterooms and a galley, and they were famous for their prime rib. On the Puget, they eat canned soup. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening, and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian.